Arozarena steals home. Taylor is a lefty, had his back to him. And as soon as he came set, Arozarena took off and is in there in a head first slide. It is five to nothing. All right, Kevin Barker. Now I know that you are a race skeptic. <clears throat> I think it's safe to say you're you're race skeptical. <laughs> Several times you've told me I can't stand watching the race. They're just uh... Are you prepared to admit after seeing Randy Arozarena hit a home run and steal home? Not the first time anybody's done that in a World Series or in a in a playoff game. Are you prepared now to admit that the Tampa Bay Rays are the greatest show on turf? <laughs> so you're telling me if I had choices to watch other games at the same time that they were on, would I Correct. watch them instead of another team? My Correct. answer to that would be absolutely not. Now, I, I am willing. To, I am willing to say that they are in my mind, and you know, I, I joke around with you. A lot because you are a raise up and you are a diehard, you know, till you can't breathe anymore. You're the you're the biggest cheerleader on earth of the of the Tampa Bay Rays. I I will say and I come to the realization that they are the best team in the American League. Now I I I will say if the Astros can figure out ways to maneuver around their bullpen, that that if this is just me, wishful thinking. If you can get an ALCS with the Astros and the Rays in it, that that for me will, you know, almost could be the World Series of baseball this year. The Rays, 5 nothing winners over the Boston Red Sox. I called the Rays to sweep the series. I'm feeling fairly confident in that call. The Astros beat the White Sox 6-1. to A lot of talking points out of that series, and uh, we will cover them. We'll also be joined... In half an hour or so by Alex Anthopoulos, general manager and president of baseball operations of the Atlanta Braves, ahead of their game today. There's four games on tap today, remember, ahead of their game against the Milwaukee Brewers. And Mark Topkin, one of our favorites of the Tampa Bay Times, will be along, and we'll have a little Rays love in here, right here on Blair and well, Parker. Half we'll, the room we'll put will. put our Rays cap on. No, two-thirds of the room will. <laughs> it is amazing, though, isn't it? Kevin Cash, <clears throat> I know Kevin Cash had a comment yesterday about Still being asked time and again about how his team is the little engine that could. Still being asked, are you surprised that your team was able to do what it was able to do this year, <clears throat> given all the changes? And the changes, actually, it, to me, the changes the changes are remarkable. Jason Stark breaks down the changes that this year's, especially the pitching staff, has gone through compared to last year's. And you generally don't see teams do this. You generally don't see teams do this. But I want to ask you this, Kevin. I think one of the things that the Rays, and I will admit, they've lacked, right? They, they have, I mean, they've always had the good pitching, right? They've always known how to position guys. We've talked about the Rays' magic and how they do things in the margins of the game that seem to be better than other teams. But I really think in Randy Arose Arena, and I know this is only his second year, but it seems to me that they now have a guy, Kevin, who I don't know how you quantify it, but a guy who really likes to play in big moments. 
And yeah, they've got a lot of consistent offensive players. You look at the runs they scored this year. But to me, Randy Rosarain is the one guy, and, and maybe Wander Franco will emerge like this too, because he certainly seems to embrace the situation. A Rosarena seems to be the one guy that says, this is a show. I am the star of the show. Watch what I can do. They, I don't know if they've had that in previous years when they've been really good, but something's always kind of held them back. Yeah, they're they're the complete package. They, they they put a lot of pressure on the base pass to make other teams make the plays. You saw Rosarena go first to home in the first inning. That that got the crowd into it. That got their bench into it. Kevin Cash was fired up. Kevin Cash, you know, sort of gloves off in the playoffs with Rosarena. He was talking after the game about, you know, you have to rein him in sometimes when he's on the bases because all he wants to do is run. He just wants to take off because he has electric speed and he's a physical freak. And sometimes as the manager, you got to go, hey, enough of that. We got to let other guys, you know, do their thing and hit behind the runner and go first to third, put a lot of pressure, and we can't be getting thrown out on the bases. And then you get in the playoffs and Kevin's sort of like, okay, you know, I've done it all year holding you back, and I don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So you you got to get buy-in from the front office. You get buy-in from your manager. And, oh, by the way, you have to have a physical freak enough guy that can go out there and actually take over a game. And, yeah, you, you know, it's to be able to do the things he's doing, the 11 home runs he's hit as a rookie in the playoffs, that's that's nuts. Like, you, don't, you just don't see things like that. It's yeah, He just embraces, you know, I, I saw him warming up, uh, th- throwing in the outfield in, in cowboy boots. Like, it's just, it's just <laughs> like, you know, there, there's a lot of people sometimes that I've been around that hide in the moment, don't want to be seen, you know, don't don't draw attention to yourself. Well, you can't really do that if you're wearing cowboy boots thrown in the outfield. And, and I'm with you. He embraces that. He looks forward to it. And the organization, you know, goes outside the box, you can say, and sort of lets him be himself and, and says – Go get them. Take us where we need to go. What I find notable about the Rays, and I think I really just stumbled on it this year, and you just referred to it. We talk about how Kevin Cash manages his pitching, and it's really strange. Here's a guy who doesn't give his pitchers much rope, but does believe in getting giving his position players rope. You talked about a Rosarena's got he's got the green light. Brandon Lau last year that in the playoffs. Brandon Lau last year, exactly, yeah. exactly. I wonder if maybe that's not necessarily the key to this to the Rays, and that they've kind of got a split personality offensively. It's almost like a basketball team where the head coach says the first. 38 minutes of the game are mine. Yeah, are, are, are not mine. The first 38 minutes of the game are yours. The last two minutes, you know, I'll control things. I'll control things. And so you kind of give, you let your big dogs eat offensively, but you also control, hyper-control your pitching staff. And 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 I think maybe that's the key to this. It, it's always been hard to figure out how come the Rays are so, they, they seem to be so doctrinaire when it comes to their pitchers and that no third time through not afraid to take a starting pitcher out at any time of the game but at the same time offensively it's like go and do what you want to do it's it's almost like have fun have fun when you have the ball basically and play defense 
It's like basketball. Have fun when you have the ball. Play defense when we don't. And that may be the key to Kevin Cash in the race. Yeah, he's a mad scientist. Look, it's this time of the year. Sometimes you got to take some gloves off and you learn from your mistakes. Last year, he wore out his bullpen. Quite frankly, that's just the way it was. This year, offensively, maybe with Nelson Cruz added to the mix, Wander Franco this year, you can see he's a physical freak too. The things line to line he does, he can barrel up baseballs like no young kid you've seen other than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, they, They got... Uh, you know, elite athletes offensively that can match up against other teams' best lineups, and that for me is the big difference. And then you add the Kevin Cash and and the and the khakis that we like to talk about that can you know the the Red Sox yesterday hit some line drives right at people, like they smoked some baseballs, but the defender was standing right there, and and that just says a lot to game planning before the game actually happens that, you know, you, you get a pitcher to buy into how to get a certain guy out. If he throws it where you are, are supposed to throw it, that defender will be standing there and eight times out of 10, we're going to get an out because most balls that are hit right at a, at a big league defender, that should be out all the time. So it's look that they are, they are a really, really good team and they are an experienced team. They have a home field advantage. The trop is a home field advantage. You saw Kiermaier lost the ball in the, in the, in the lights last night at like 10, 15 at night. Like it's, you know, it's not the easiest place to play. If it's hard for them to play there, you got to imagine how much harder it is for opposing teams to come in there and play. And they had 27,000 fans there. You know, that, that doesn't sound like a ton of people, but it ain't 4,000 that they normally have during the regular season. And you add the mix to that. You just listen to Nelson Cruz talk to Hazel May after the game last night. And she asked, you know, what, what are you, why are you so good in the playoffs? And the first thing out of his mouth was because the fans. It's just, it's a big difference between the fans this time of the year than the fans in the regular season. And, you know, right now it's, it's for me, the American League, I, I hate to say it this way, but right now the American League goes to Tampa Bay. Yeah, I no, I think that I think that that's that's very accurate. And it was an interesting crowd last night because we've seen we've seen big crowds for Rays games and the Yankees or the Red Sox come into town because a lot of folks drive up from Fort Myers and there's you know there are a lot of people uh, there are a lot of people from the Northeast who who have places in Florida or have relocated to Florida. That was one of the few times I've seen a Red Sox game or a Yankees game from the Trop where it seemed as if the crowd was really was really pro Tampa. Mm. There were pockets of Red Sox fans you could hear them, but it really seemed as if the crowd was pro Tampa. Kevin, I want to talk about the steal of home. Walk me through that. It, it seemed to me to be perfectly perfectly set up. Left-hander on the mound. Rafael Devers is is playing way back. Yeah. At third base. Randy Rosarina, it looked to me like he could have walked into home plate. He he times it up perfectly, but Kevin, I I, I was always kind of led to believe that if you're a pitcher and and you and somebody tries to steal home, throw a strike, throw a throw a strike. One of two things are going to happen. One, maybe a strikeout the dude at the plate. Yeah. Or two, if you throw a strike, it stands to reason that it's going to be easy for the catcher. At least the catcher's got a chance to put uh, a tag on. Okay, Is that's there- it. That's impossible Go to ahead. do. You get, that's impossible to do when you got all your teammates yelling and screaming at you, home, home, home. The first thing you think of is to step off the rubber. Like it's just okay, for, for, for a pitcher to actually think enough just to raise his leg and the catcher to stay in his position to be able to, 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 throw, to throw a strike with two, with two strikes on a batter. It's 
Look, everything lined up exactly perfect. For me, it starts with Kevin Cash and giving a Rosarena the green light. I, we've talked about that early to, to open He's the show. wanted it all year. Now, yeah, there you go. You know, it's it's just one of those things where gloves off. You know, we got an elite athlete. Let him go out there and be elite. And everything lined up. You could see him timing up the lefty, the back turned. The lefty had the little pause in his in his windup that allowed him to to get a a, a good uh, momentum going towards the home plate. You know, you got to line it up with your right foot. All your momentum's got to be landing at the exact right time so you can get your good jump. Devers was off the line. You got to have a pull hitter at the plate where the, that defender is. You know, allows you to get down the line a little bit more. Uh, you know, you got to pick the right pitch, which is two strikes, because you don't you don't want to be moving around over there a whole lot because you you do have Brandon Lau up, who who had 39 homers and 99 ribbies. You want to give him a chance to drive you in. He's earned the right to do that. So you don't want to do that early in the count. You want to give him a chance. You don't want to be, you know, jumping off and doing a bunch of, of moving around. I know he did one time look like he was trying to time it up to see the reaction of the pitcher, see the reaction of the defender, see if that would move Devers over, which it did not. Uh, you know, but it's it just sort of lined up exactly the way I think a raised team this time of the year should look. I like I I I don't want know if I can say it any other way than you know is this surprising to you that you saw the Rays do this? It, it for me it's really not. Now again, you you saw a Rosarena go first to home. He's a he's a very hard runner. He's going to put his head down and run until that third base coach makes him stop. Like. The third base coach actually has to run at him, yelling and screaming, stop, stop, stop. That's how hard he's running around the bases. So, you know, he gives a lot of effort. Uh, he, he got a great jump at third base. You know, this is that, that for me was a big run because now it took away the, the grand slam of tying the game. Now it's a five-run lead instead of a four-run lead. And that's huge because that that keeps Kevin Cash from having to use his highest leverage guys. Now I've asked you, who are those guys? Pete Fairbanks, and then who? Who else? That, that's the it's question you got to ask yourself. Shagwa, Kittredge. There's so many of them that he could go to. Yeah. That that it's just you know you're you're putting a, a lot of the mad scientist over there is putting some names in the hat going. I got this guy that throws 97 with power sink and a slider. I got this guy that throws 99 with the exact same thing with a weird arm angle. I can go to any of them at any time of the game. It just adding that extra run allowed the manager to. <sighs> allowed the the guy that was on the mound at that time on their team to, uh, and then they just, you know, now they can today line it up to where probably they have their highest leverage guy, guys go seven, eight, nine, and it's going to be tough for the Red Sox to come back from this. So if you're wondering, it was the first authentic straight steal of home in a postseason game since Jackie Robinson in game one of the 55 World Series. We've all seen that play a, a, a million times. Mm-hmm. During the regular season, only one active player has ever hit a home run and pulled off a non-double steal wipe of uh, swipe of home in a game. That was Elvis Andres for the Rangers on April fourteenth, two thousand and nineteen. So this hitting a home run and stealing stealing home doesn't happen. Uh, stealing home in a postseason game again, never a straight steal of home where it's just basically base runner taking off. First time since since Jackie Robinson's play, mm-hmm. and uh, that that just boy, if you're looking for an early sign of how a postseason is going to go for a team, you would have to say that that that's it. Kevin, yeah. let's talk. Well, the cat's out of the bag. It's not going to happen again because now the word's yeah. out that the Rays are very aggressive. Certain guys are going to 
push it a little bit more than other guys. Defenders pull hitter up. That third base was going to get a little closer to the line with two strikes, those kind of things. So, yeah, it's fun to watch the first time, but it it's not going to happen again. Words you up. made a point about the Rays being a good base running team. Now, Randy Rosarena has been thrown out 10 times. Yeah. That, that's, why Kev, steals, that's why Kevin Cash hasn't times. given the green light. That's why it's yeah, it's good. It, but they are a good base running team, you said. Explain your de- that Your definition of a good base running team is different than mine. My, mine, I want, uh, you know, you can't run into stupid outs. That That's not a good base running team. You have to be very aggressive. You have a third base coach for a reason. But you also have to be very smart base runner. Smart base runner means I only use the third base coach to stop me or when the play's behind me. That's why I use him. The plays in front of you should never have to use a third base coach. You should be a, at this level. You should know well enough to be able to cut good corners around the bags. That's what I'm talking about. A, a good base running team. And you got to want to run the bases that that Dusty Baker used to put me in when I was at the Reds, when I was at the end of my career, to run the bases. And I always laugh at him after the game being, why, why do you do that? And he said, well, because you cut good corners around the bags, you want to run the bases and you're a smart base runner. And that, for me, is the race. Like, they they make teams throw them out. They make teams make plays. It's like Kiki Hernandez, that that ball to left center that was hit, and a Rosarena was running just as hard as he could possibly run, and they bobbled the ball a little bit, and that's why they scored a run. That's my point. Is they're going to get thrown out occasionally because they're very aggressive, and sometimes they don't think it through. But most of the time, they're putting so much pressure, and that that defender sees that runner running as hard as he is. That tends to take your eyes off the ball and your eyes on the runner, and then you make a mistake, and they still runs that way. And it's just it's this for me is why it's the Rays because they do the little things, just putting pressure early in a game when the stakes are the highest, and you get a lead, and you're you're at home, and you get the fans in it, and now that that rookie pitcher can go out there and throw 99 with with you know arm side run and throw the devastating knee buckling slider and occasionally flip in the curveball because you have the lead and he doesn't have the fear anymore. That's the race. We got to talk about Wander Franco and uh, we will talk about him. But I, I do want to touch on the Boston Red Sox, Kevin. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez started. Alex Cora again the quick hook. Nick Pavetta came in, pitched a lot of relief. I, I, Kevin, I just don't see how he pieces it together. I don't see how Alex Cora pieces it together this postseason. Yeah, it looks pitching. like, De- looks I like, really don't. sounds like Devers is hurt. He got a wrist, a wrist issue. Uh, that's a huge deal. Not having JD Martinez healthy, that's a huge issue. Uh, that's a lot easier for, you know, even the race to, to maneuver through. I'm going to pitch around Alexander Bogarts. I'm going to elevate a heater to Devers. I'm not afraid to do that because you can tell. You know, keeping both hands on the on the bat in his big finish, he looks like he's over swinging a little. It just doesn't look like it's free and easy because he's thinking more about that injury or something's the ailment with something that he wants to do at the plate that he's not able to. Not having JD Martinez, not having the greatest of bullpens. Your starter has to be outstanding. Rodriguez didn't have his fastball command. You don't have your fastball command against the Rays, who were a surprisingly. Uh, uh, took the uh, thing against just not being so aggressive at the plate early in the game, which is very odd for a race team. We, we've seen the race how many times mm-hmm. and how aggressive they were where they weren't this time. They, they made Rodriguez throw quality pitches early in the game. You know, he didn't have the feel for the fastball. He didn't have the feel for the curveball, the changeup kind of thing. And that's why you only see him face nine batters. 
And Alex Cora is trying to piece it together. I said this to you. The, the managers that are a little on the ropes when it comes to health issues and just doesn't match up because the other team's better are going to have quicker hooks. I'm, we're gonna, that's why the Tony La Russa thing yesterday was very surprising because I think that the Astros are much better. And you got to keep your try and keep your team in it to give them a chance late, and that's what you saw from Alex Cora. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, La Russa and uh, the Astros in a little bit. A reminder that there are four games on tap today. The first game, Game Two of the White Sox Astros series, is on MLB Network. It is an MLB Net- Network exclusive. You get that during the postseason. So uh, if you got a package that has MLB Network, it'll be smooth sailing for you. Game one of the Braves and Brewers series is at 4.30 Eastern. We'll have it on Sportsnet. Game two of the Rays and Red Sox series starts at 7 o'clock. And the first game of the Dodgers and Giants series, a series a lot of folks have been waiting for, that will be at 9.37. And again, that will be on Sportsnet. So four baseball games today, three of them available in Sportsnet, as we mentioned, the White Sox and Astros game. That is on the MLB Network. All right, let's take a look, Kevin, before we uh, break and and get to Alex Anthopoulos. Let's take a quick look at that Astros-White Sox game, specifically something you talked about, Tony La Russa's, I, I would say, slow hook with Lance Lynn, which surprised me because the strength of the White Sox all year long has been their pitching. Starting pitching's been good. We know the starting pitching might be a little beaten up right now, but, Kevin, that bullpen is deep. It's the hardest-throwing bullpen perhaps we've ever seen in baseball. It's balanced. I mean, you've got you've got weapons coming all over the place. I thought Tony La Russa stuck with Lance Lynn maybe two or three batters too long. And with Mickey Brantley coming up, I don't know if that's the right call to let or Michael Brantley coming up. I don't yeah. know if that's the right call to let Lance Lynn pitch there. Yeah. Well, you, you got to ask yourself when you're down three, nothing on the road to a, a very good offensive team who mashes fastballs. You got a guy on the ma- the mound who threw uh, 74 of his pitches out of 76 were all fastballs. Now they were cutter sinker thrown in there. So you can, you know, talk about a fastball any way you want to, but the, the, they are really good at zoning up and hitting velocity. And then you got Michael Brantley coming up just by splits with second and third and two outs. You know, I I know that Lance Lynn got him to ground out weekly to second base, but you got second and third and two outs. You got a lefty coming up. You got Alex Bregman on deck. There's two options for me. You you can either walk Brantley, pitch to Alex Bregman, or you can bring in a lefty to pitch to Michael Brantley. Lefties, against lefties this year, he's hitting 219. Against righties, he was hitting 363. You can. Go to the advanced analytics all you want to. Just look at that stat. That that for me is back to my point when I was talking about Alex Cora trying to keep his team in it early just to give him a chance late. Well, there it is again. On the road, a a Hall of Fame manager for me, down 3 nothing. you know, would want to keep it 3 nothing with two outs. Mm-hmm. Just didn't seem like he had the the thinking it through enough to go. Okay, I'd rather be down three nothing than five nothing. I don't want to pitch to a really good left-handed hitter that or with a guy on the mound who's right-handed. Either I go to my lefty, get my lefty loose, or I go, I, I walk him and I pitch to Alex Bregman. He didn't either. They made it. Uh, Brantley made it pay for it. It's five nothing, and you know as well as I do when it's five nothing on the road against the Astros, that game's over. Yeah, I. 
I found it odd because I looked at the the White Sox lineup, and if I'm Tony Larusa, if I'm Tony Larusa, with with all due respect to the Houston Astros, when it's three nothing, I'm still managing like I have a chance. Yep, because I know that I've got a good offensive lineup. For the first time in a long time, I've got a healthy offensive lineup. You know, Jimenez is in the lineup. Luis Robert is in the lineup. So the lineup's the best it's been all year for me. And I've, by the way, I've got a bullpen that, that nobody can hit. That was, to me, a reflection of Tony being too old school. That was an old school thing to do. I'm, Lance Lynn's my horse. He's a big guy. I'm, I'm going to go with Lance Lynn. And you know that Lance Lynn and Tony La Russa, I mean, they've, they've had a relationship going back to St. Louis. Lance Lynn has been a good workhorse for Tony La Russa. And I really wonder if maybe that didn't enter the discussion here. Because you're right, Kevin. I, the Astros are a really good team. Yeah. And Lance McCullers was terrific mm-hmm. yesterday. But 3 nothing is not. It is not. That's not Craw- something Craw- you got a red that lineup of, can't overcome. You got well, the White Sox got a bunch of right-handed hitters in that Crawford box. You you got a you got a bloop and a bomb. You're right back in that thing. It's three two instead of five two. That's the whole point. Is you're thinking about how do you keep your team in it? And you could see that Lance Lynn was he was you know working through it. He was grinding mm-hmm. through that. Right. It was I come on here saying you got to pound them in. If they got any chance whatsoever, they got to establish in to to the Astros lineup because they're diving out over the plate and trying to stay in the big part of the field. And then when they do get a hanger, they can use that Crawford box. It was just, it was for me, not what you expect from a hall of fame manager. Yeah. That's, that's quite frankly, I think anyway, any way you can say it, that's the one way of basically saying that your manager's job at that time of the game is to keep your team in it. Give them a chance on the road. Maybe somebody hangs a breaking ball late. You know, you saw the bullpen. Graveman wasn't good. What if mm-hmm. that's three, nothing. Well, that's a, that's Correct. a huge deal, right? You put pre- you can tell the Astros' uh, uh, kryptonite is their bullpen. Like Dusty is, and Dusty's weakness is going to the right guy at the right time. So that opposing manager for me just, yeah, I'm, it's I'm almost with like you. I, was, to- I was wondering why. Yeah, it's almost like Tony Larusa gave away the one huge edge he has in this series, getting bull- going bullpen to bullpen with Dusty Baker. Uh, I I found it really I found it surprising. I, look, I I still think that's going to be a tough series because the white because of the White Sox lineup and because of their pitching. Yeah. But boy, oh boy, Houston looks Houston looks locked in. They really do look locked in, and they look. Yeah, this isn't you know this. I guess this is kind of bad sports writer cliche logic. But I also do really think, just based on some of the comments you're hearing, Kevin, there's an idea that the Astros feel that they owe some people some stuff. I think they're tired of having the cheating thing thrown in their face. I think they're just tired of it. Well, this, I said, is their last, this is the last chance for all those dudes to win a World Series. I, I, I think say, they see it that I way. say them having home field advantage until they get to the Rays is a big deal. And I go wham to all the Astros fans or, or, <laughs> or the lineup that says, I'm tired of hearing about the cheating thing. Well, you earned that. So you get used to it. You always be known as that. Sorry, that's just, that's just the way it is. They have a really good team. Altuve, uh, Jordan Alvarez is unbelievable. That balance oh, of the lineup, that him. balance oh. of the lineup that we always talk about, the Blue Jays, they have it. They're impossible to pitch to. They they drive in runs. You know, who do you who do you not want up when when push comes to shove? You can name any guy in that lineup. So there gonna be a handful. But again, it gets down to it, get, it comes down to Dusty. Dusty is gonna have to go to the right guy at the right time, and and can he do it? That's the big question. We will talk about the Astros lineup. Jordan Alvarez. 
and how there really are, I think, some lessons for the Blue Jays to be seen going forward and lessons that I know they know. I'm They're, they're well aware that they need more balance in their, in their lineup, but uh, we'll talk about that in uh, the next hour. When we come back, Alex Anthopoulos, general manager, president of baseball operations of the Atlanta Braves, will join us. The Atlanta Braves, Alex Anthopoulos, again, putting a team together on the fly at the trade deadline. Braves winning the National League East. 4.30 today, first pitch, Braves and Brewers, game one of the NLDS. Alex Anthopoulos joins us. You're listening to Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Eastern will be the time of the first pitch today. Game one of the NLDS between the Atlanta Braves and the Milwaukee Brewers. Charlie Morton on the mound for the Braves. Corbin Burns for the Brewers. You can see that game on Sportsnet. We're very pleased at this time to be joined by the president of baseball operations and general manager of the Atlanta Braves, Alex Anthopoulos. Alex, thanks for joining Kevin and myself. First of all, can congratulations on uh on on getting back to the postseason again and we trust that you're doing well trust the family's doing well um does <laughs> you've been to the postseason a fair amount as a gm and an assistant gm with the dodgers with the jays and the braves does it ever i'm not going to ask you if it ever gets old but does your your idea of what it means to be in the postseason change the more you get in? So I would say this year is the year I've, um, I probably appreciate it more. I think obviously 2015, the first time you know, I had real appreciation for it and you know, going to LA those two years. And then in Atlanta, the first year, we didn't know what the expectations were, were going to be. I didn't know the roster and um, you know, things worked out for us. And then, 2019, but I think, you know, after last year, I don't know that I took it for granted or didn't appreciate it as much, but when things weren't going well during the year, um, it's probably the first time, it was, you know, you get spoiled, right? And you start thinking about, we may not get back there and so on. And I'm more appreciative of it now. Um, I'm going to try to enjoy it more than I have in, in the past. So I think just having the adversity we had this year has definitely made me appreciate it more, and uh, I don't think I'll ever take it for granted again. You talked about the uh, the regular season. Um, I mean, look, I, you know, I, baseball fans will know the Braves had a lot of a lot of hurdles to get over this year in terms of injuries. Uh, I'm looking at your acquisitions: Jorge Soler, Adam Duvall, Jock Peterson. Uh, and the team really came together after that. Alex, when you were making those deals at the deadline, how much of it was driven by analytics and that, okay, we need to replace, we, we know we're, we need to replace as much as we can of this commodity. We're not going to obviously replace Acuna and, and Azuna and all these guys, but we need to replace as much as we can uh, of these commodities. What was your approach like at the, at the deadline? Because that's, you know, you're not filling in around the margins, right? You're basically trying to add guys who are going to carry a large amount of the load and get into the postseason. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, Eddie Rosario as well, who only really showed up at the right. end of August because he was hurt. He played – he was huge for us. He played really well as a left-handed bat. Even even Stephen Vogt, before he got hurt, had 
some nice games for us. But um, yeah, I'd say there's a combination of things. So it's very hard to make deals before the end of July. Or if you can, they're small ones. Even when we did Jock Peterson, that was at the All-Star break, and that was right after we had lost Acuna and Ian Anderson had made that last start before the um, – for the all-star break and came out with a shoulder problem and we were waiting on an MRI and I had a sense that the, the whole roster was probably thinking, okay, here we go. We're going into the two weeks before the trade deadline. Everyone's going to talk about selling and so on. And I thought it was important to let the clubhouse know that we weren't going to sell, that we were still close. Our run differential was still stronger than all the other clubs in the NL East. And we'd had so many things go wrong. Obviously Darno was out, Soroka was out and Noah was out who had pitched really well for us before he had gotten hurt. Um, but there's a few things that, from experience, right, and from failure in the past. One, 2014 Toronto trade deadline, we didn't add anybody. Um, and I think at the time we were a game up on the wild card, right, or we were the second wild card at that time. And, again, I didn't plan well in terms of the offseason, saving payroll and so on. We were out of dollars, and um, we couldn't – the only guy we added was Danny Valencia because he made he, – we didn't add any salary there. So, um Having gone through that and knowing how that impacted the clubhouse, obviously that was a big story at the time. Second thing is, I'm pretty close with Billy Bean, and he has always said, if you can be around 500 at the trade deadline, and you know, and you and you believe in your club, you know, it's always the right move to add. And because a lot of clubs are just going to peel off and just not compete and sell, and and um, as long as you're close, you should always take a shot for it. And you know, having lived through years of not contending and you know obviously kevin knows this you start getting towards the end of the season fantasy football comes up and guys don't want to play against certain guys and it just becomes a miserable last two months of the year i don't want to live through that again unless we have no choice so it's really a combination of things but look we weren't going to replace any one player we weren't going to replace soroka or noah or acuna we we, we need a depth we need a depth we need as many bodies as we could get and we went with upside and guys that were starting to play that were starting to play well, weren't having great years, but we thought there was some upside there. And yeah, a combination of analytics, scouting, all all of the above, really, and also making sure that they fit the vibe in the clubhouse. And to their credit, they really did well for those last two months for us. You may just answer this a little bit, but going into these series in the playoffs, you know, filling out your roster, I would think there's the obvious guys, the guys that have gotten you here, but it's the bubble guys. It's the last couple of guys. What goes into putting those guys on the roster? Yeah, you're exactly right. You can go in, you have 26. You could, let's say there's 20 guys that are slam dunks. You don't even need to talk about them. And then you get to the bottom. And again, you're not building the roster the same way you would during the season. One, you're playing potentially five games with two off days, uh, which is not even close to the same. You don't need five starters, clearly. And, you know, I think the one thing that gives you more comfort now, the more I've been in the playoffs, is just the more prepared you are, the better you feel, the same way you would if you're going to write an exam. So we've had a lot of really good days of our advanced meetings and so on, but I think at the end of the day what it comes down to is making sure who is the manager going to use. We could all have opinions, ideas, front office coaches and so on, but at the end of the day it always comes down to where will this player be used? How much will this player see the field? So if a manager is just not comfortable with a certain player, as much as we may have him on the roster for this or that, there's no point in having that player on if he's not going to see the field. So just like you said, those last three, four spots, you really try to talk through scenarios of where they're going to be used. You, you kind of role play a little bit and you talk about top of five, bottom of the six, so-and-so happens, that happens. Is this where we would use this guy? And you just, Try to simulate as many scenarios as you can 
to see where you might use certain guys. Also knowing how the other club likes to use their players as well. Okay, I don't I don't want you to let, you know, give out state secrets here, but you just sort of soft-tossed the manager thing to me. We've seen managers this this playoffs be a little bit more aggressive. We've seen Alex Cora, nine batters through. He's changing out his starter. We've seen Kevin Cash obviously do those kind of things. When, when, you're, talking, when you're sitting down with Brian, is the conversation with you to him being, I'd rather you be too aggressive than not aggressive enough when it comes to who you're going to in the pen? Yeah, I think it comes down to how good you feel about the guys in the pen, right? It's it's the classic, if your bullpen isn't as strong, you're probably going to ride your starters a little mm-hmm. bit more. And obviously, if your pen's strong, you're going to go that way. But maybe there's certain guys in the bullpen that really line up against a certain part of the other team's lineup. Maybe there's a string of, of right-handers, or maybe there's you know a spot where in right in the lineup, you've got a guy with a really good slider in this part of the lineup. Guys have a hard time with hard sliders and things like that. But my big thought is, with this stuff is I always tell the manager the same thing. He has to do what he feels is right. I'm not the guy sitting up at the podium Mm -hmm. after the game. I'm not the guy having to deal with the players and so on. We'll give, we'll give thoughts. We'll give information and so on, but he has to run that clubhouse. They have to know that he's making the calls and you know, I, I'll have, I'll have thoughts, ideas and so on, but rarely am I really strong on something. And if I am, he's already in the same place. So, I think the biggest thing is runs are at a premium. And I think what you, what you do see in the postseason is, you know, you talk about if you have to put a fire out, there might be a big spot in the game. Maybe it's in the fourth or the fifth. Even if you look at the game with New York and the Red Sox when Clay Holmes came in, that, that was huge. You know, they, they kept the game close and they brought Holmes in early and he kept the game close and obviously they still didn't win, but he gave them a chance. So um, I think you see that a lot, especially when you have one game and so on, but, um, and I think at the end of the day, these guys are all, I mean, everyone has the information, the data and so on, but the manager has to do what he feels is right. What he feels good about, because he's the one who has to answer to the players. He has to answer to the media. Um, and I think it's really important in terms of being able to, to manage the, the club. Alex, what did you learn about your team, the core of your team from their experience in the postseason last year? You know, I mean, what you're up, I think you're up, you're up three to one um, in, in in that series. What did you learn about the core of that team? Or do you, do you, do you have to keep in mind that the regular season, and the postseason are two different things? You know, they, they really are. It's just not the same. You don't manage the same way. You don't you just everything. The rosters are different and so on. I think one, you know, having faced LA last year, they're just an unbelievable team. To win four games is hard, no matter who who it is. So, and for us, it was close. It was close in so many areas. I mean, even game seven, we lost that by one run. So, um, they're a relentless club. And for us, there was a few small things that happened, base running and so on. Um, But, look, they're a great club, and um, it was a grind. And the other thing, too, about last year that was so challenging, there were no off days. So, we had a really strong bullpen but again, they start to go on fumes a little bit when you have so many games in a row. And even Travis Travis Darno caught all those games, um, and he was a big part of the team as well. So um, I don't know that there's anything that really jumped out. I think in my time in Atlanta, obviously my fourth year and fourth time, we're now back in the playoffs. The first year is the one that jumps out where we had a young club in L.A. The clubhouse was quiet. And you could just tell everyone, just a lot of guys hadn't experienced it in the past. It was the first time. 
And even I remember being there for game one, game two. It, just a, it was too quiet in the clubhouse. It just didn't feel right. And now I think with experience, these guys now, I don't, they don't get phased by it. They don't get rattled by it. They've all been through so much. And I also like the fact that, you know, in the other years, we, we would have clinched a little bit earlier, maybe with a week or 10 days left. We clinched basically with three games left, four games left. And um, the fact that we've been playing playoff games basically since the All-Star break, um, we've been playing playoff games. Our backs have been up against the wall for a long time. I think that's going to bode well for us because our guys are pretty locked in right now, and obviously the Brewers are a great club. But um, I have seen it in the past where, you know what, you've been off for a little while, you're not playing competitive games, and then they try to ramp back up for the playoffs. It seems like some sometimes guys lose a, you know, they lose a little bit of that competitiveness and just need a little time to get going. So I do think that should help us going into the series. Anything Austin Riley this year has done that, has surprised you from afar? You know, so he had a, he was okay last year. He had a low 700 OPS and our stuff internally probably had him as a high 700. We thought there was some bad luck, but so we figured he'd give us something in, in the low eights or, or eight. And look, he got a lot better than that. He played a lot better than that. Defensively, we were confident he was going to continue to make strides, but no, there's no doubt we got more out of him than we thought, but we did expect him to be good. The one thing, if you look at his career is, Every time he spends more time at a level, he repeats a level. He just keeps getting better and better and better. The work ethic, the just his knowledge, his feel, his his instincts, all those things are really strong. So, not surprised. We definitely counted on him to be a big part of the, the team. He hit eighth last year uh, for a lot of the year, and we we felt pretty strongly that he would be able to move up in the order because he was going to be a lot better. Uh, last question for us, uh, Alex, and we do, we really do appreciate your time. Um, you've seen Charlie Morton as an opponent now that he is with your team. Explain Charlie Morton to me, (laughs) I guess is what I'm asking. You know, he seems to be throwing a little harder this year. Uh, He's a guy I've always, I just like watching him pitch. I, I, I enjoy watching him go to work. What's he like and, and, and what type of an impact has he had on that team? Yeah, he, you know, I've, look, I've been around a lot of really great players and <clears throat> a lot of players that I really like, but he might be the most likable player in the game. And one, he's just refreshingly honest, candid, thoughtful, uh, unbelievable teammate. I mean, part of the appeal beyond the fact that he's really good was we had young guys like Soroka, like Max Fried, like Ian Anderson. And, you know, this, again, my experience in Toronto, having guys like, Pat Henkin tell me all the influences that he had in his career and what it meant to him and how it impacted him as well. Um, you know, I just think it's a real thing, especially when you're trying to, you know, the, the guys that we do have these young starters, they have a chance to be here for a long time and trying to set a, a baseline of what we expect and who we want them to be um, in, in the clubhouse and so on, I think is a big deal. Now, stuff wise, um, it's velocities up. The curveball is as good as you're going to find. Uh, he's got a really good changeup as well. He doesn't throw it all that often, but he can four-seam it, two-seam two it. He can throw a little slider, cutter as well. He doesn't throw it all that often. Obviously, the curveball is the go-to pitch. Um, and he, he loves the big stage. And, um, you know, we had the best start of the year was we had our last series against the in the last week against the Phillies. He was incredible. Came in and huge start for us facing Zach Wheeler. Um and he delivered. He was amazing. So um, we're thrilled. We're thrilled to have him. Uh, great guy to have. And obviously excited to have him take the ball game one. 
Alex, we're going to let you run. Really appreciate your time. Uh, congratulations again, and and best of luck this postseason. Thanks as always, my friend. Be well. Thanks, Alex. Uh, all right, guys. Glad to be on. Take care. That's Alex Anthopoulos, president, yeah. baseball operations, and general manager of the Atlanta Braves. Jeff, I got to be honest with you. When he was talking about Charlie Morton, the first, you know the first name that popped in my mind when you when you talk about the Blue Jays, Marcus Simeon. Yeah, what what he what he you know, Charlie Morton he was talking about that clubhouse thing matters how you go about your everyday routine how how a club a clubhouse is supposed to act how you're supposed to act if you have a bad start it's just little things and then you see how Bo talked about Marcus Simeon and and obviously that relationship and and what Marcus Simeon brings hey maybe that's there's more to that than meets the eye kind of thing yeah and I. You know, look, I, I think in some ways there there there's some similarities between between the Atlanta Braves and the Toronto Blue Jays, just in the fact the core is still young. Now the the Braves, of course, have had a little more a little more postseason experience than this particular group, but yeah, it 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 is of all the of all the things I've heard Alex say over the years, it, it, when I've interviewed him or when I've even talked to him. It is interesting to hear him talk about when he first got into the business, when, when he first really got into scouting at the ground level and how his approach to players was very analytically driven, which makes sense because he was a young guy and he was coming up at the time when, when analytics were, you know, people were, were just sort of dipping their toes in that. But hearing him be so open about evolving when it comes to understanding the dynamics of a clubhouse. It really, I think, shows you how a general manager changes as he gets older and, and how all those experiences, you don't, I don't think you ever change your core philosophy. I think if you asked Alex to design the perfect Alex Anthopoulos ball player right now, it would be, almost the same guy as 10 years ago, but there'd be more of an emphasis, I think on character. And I, I love that Alex said about that clubhouse and Kevin, you've played in those clubhouses yep. and I've covered clubhouses. There's nothing, nothing worse than a clubhouse that is out of it in August. I mean, there just isn't guys are giving each other the stink eye. Uh, you know, he, he was right about fantasy football. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. He was right. I, yeah. I, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to say what year it was. I'm not going to say what year it was, there was a Blue Jays team that closed its clubhouse to the media one day in one weekend in September. And we thought, oh, my God, this is there, there's uh, they're having a team meeting and, and you know, and, and 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 this and that and the crisis. No, they had they were holding a fantasy draft like two hours before a Sunday afternoon game now, because they weren't playing for anything. And, you know, Alex is right. You do get things where it. Again, Kev, I'm going to go to your experience. You know as well as I do. There are guys that September 14th, you're 25 games out, and you're a lefty, and here comes some guy throwing 100. Boy, yeah, that hamstring's kind of barking a bit. I'm not saying guys do it all the time, but it does become a slog. And it's interesting hearing hearing Alex refer to that 2014 Blue Jay season as something that he went to school on and, and understanding now that yeah, at the end of the day, they are numbers and their spreadsheets and mm -hmm. you know, they're, uh, you know, weighted on base average and weighted runs created and all that. But at the end of the day, they're also human beings. Yeah. And when stuff sucks in baseball, 
it really sucks because you don't have two days off. You're in the, even if you're not playing that day, you're in the clubhouse. You're in the clubhouse with the guy who's over thirty mm-hmm. and is thirty six years old and doesn't know where he's playing next year. Yeah, well, you can't you can't teach experience is what I what I was hearing from Alex and and you know every great organization wants young athletic that are going to be around for a long period of time that these experienced GMs and presidents can build around that. But they need one or two experienced, really good players who not only lead by example, but can go in a clubhouse and raise their hand and go, this is not the way we're going to do it. This is the way I did it. I know it works because I've been there and done it before. That's what all these organizations are trying to do. And that's why I come back to that Marcus Simeon thing. And, you know, I've said this before to you and you've said it to, to, to the people that are listening. Whenever we look up on the TV and they're, showing pregame of Bo and Vladdy and Santiago Espinal on their knees with Marcus Simeon taking ground balls. And it's just the whole thing that goes into that really good older player who's been there and done it before that can lead by example on both sides of the ball that are trying to lead young guys. It's, it's what every good team's looking for. And they, and for me, they must have it. 